Hi, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of the Software Cross podcast. Today with us, we have Charity Majors, um, and Charity is the co-founder and CTO of Unicom.io, the original observability company. Hi, Charity, and welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Today, we have a pattern, and a, a very short one, and the pattern is build confidence. What is your experience with this pattern? With build confidence? Yes. Uh, most people don't have it. <laughs> um, most people, I mean, this is where the whole, like, don't deploy on Friday meme comes from, is that, like, people... Um, they they cross their fingers you know when they deploy they don't they, I assume that's what you mean by build confidence um which which really you know the, the reason that they don't have confidence in their builds or, or their deploys is often because they don't have comp like first of all most people's deploy processes are completely broken right they, they batch up a bunch of different changes whether that's a day's worth or a week's worth and they ship them all at once so you might have you know you certainly have more than one person's changes, whether you have 20 or 50, you know, you have a bunch of changes that you're bundling out and shipping at once, um, which maximizes the, the chances that your build is going to, that your deploy is going to fail, right? Um, so people are scared of them, so they put them off, so they do them less, and it's just, a, it's like a death spiral that you get into because, um, what you, what you want to be doing is shipping smaller changes much more often, I would argue, shipping one 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 set of diffs one merge at like one engineer at a time is really the ideal because then you can help that and you can have that engineer own their own build and deploy and they immediately know if their changes broke the build or not right that is correct that is correct i also observe a lot of that in our industry and to battle these don't deploy on Fridays meme, right? That is a very good meme for this uh, this pattern. How can teams uh, uh, build this confidence when, for instance, the, the, the build and deploy process is broken in the way that you sure. described? I mean, first of all, I want to say that, you know, the don't deploy on Friday thing, it's, it's not about Fridays, right? Um, I have, I literally have a t-shirt that says deploy on Fridays, uh, but it's not about Fridays. It's, it's just about being able to trust your process so that, you know, so that you're not terrified of it. So that, you know, now I'm, I'm never going to say that people should just like, you know, just like what we say at Honeycomb is don't, uh, don't merge and run. Right, because as soon as you merge your changes, you automatically know it's going to go out within a few minutes. So use your engineering judgment to, to, to decide you know, do I have enough time to stick around and make sure that my changes are good? If not, don't ship, don't deploy, whether it's Tuesday at 2 p.m. or Thursday at 5 p.m. or or on Friday, right? You should never ship when you don't have when you, when you don't have enough time to stay, stick around and own your, your deploy. Um, and and, and <laughs> I think that if you can if you can do a continuous deployment, um, this is ideal because you know, and 15 minutes or less is always what I say, because you really want to have as tight of a, of a feedback loop as possible so that you're, you're writing the code, you're instrumenting as you go, you merge it, within a few minutes it's live, and then you go and you look at it through the lens of the instrumentation that you just wrote, and you ask yourself, is this doing what I expected it to do, and does anything else look weird, right? And 
you know, some changes are bigger than others. You know, if you're just doing a small tweak, maybe that's all it takes. If you're doing something like, oh, say, you know, adding a new compression algorithm to your storage engine, you should probably let it bake for a couple of weeks <laughs> and periodically check up, check up on it. But your job isn't done until, until you've closed that loop. Your job isn't done until you've verified that it's working in production um, and it's doing what you expected it to do. And so your question was like, how do you fix a broken, you know, build and deploy process? And the answer is, the answer is both simple and, and complicated. Um, and, it, it, and it's also hard to generalize because people are, people's build and deploy systems are broken in, in, in a myriad of ways, <laughs> right? It's hard to give anyone a prescription because it could be this, it could be that. Um, but it all boils down to shrinking that interval between when you've written it and when it's live, um, making sure that it's just one merge set at a time or as few as possible, right? Two or three is way better than 20 or 30. Right. And 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 then, you know, holding people accountable and then you want observability, too, so that you can actually instrument your code and then go look at it, and see, is it working as intended and is it doing anything weird? And what most people have is not observability. What most people have is monitoring. And all that's ever going to tell you is in aggregate are the changes mostly good enough or mostly the same. If you can't, if you don't have observability, which lets you slice and dice down to raw events and break them down by high cardinality, high dimensionality, um, then, then there's going to be a lot more hand waviness about this, right? There's going to be a lot more, well, I don't see a spike in errors, so it's probably fine, right? Which is very different from, you know, having having a, an instance that is running one version, an instance that's running another version and comp comparing them side by side. Um, it's still sort of possible, but it's always better if you have observability. I totally agree with you as well. So um, we talk a lot about, at least in this segment, about the engineering practices to build confidence, right? Uh, so uh, um, a question that can be controversial. Would you say that these engineering practices are also connected to the culture of the company? Oh, completely. 1000%. These are socio-technical systems, right? It's not just it's not just production, it's not just a team. They're all part of a single system. Um, and what are some of the ways that this can break down? Well, I'm sure you've seen some. <laughs> what what ways have you seen the culture break down? Uh, well, for instance, the, this top down um, that you were uh, pointing out, so the, the, the great engineers that the company can have, but when engineers have a, an opinion how to run the business on how they are organizing inside of these socio-technical systems, some people with a perceived power just shut them down, right? So yeah, just go and do um, the stuff that you do, right? Which is very odd because uh, we hire engineers to solve complex problems, right? Yeah. Very complex domains. And then we try just to box these people uh, yeah. on this confined space. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's ridiculous. I, I mean, the, the thing that always comes back to me is ownership. You know, ownership, responsibility, accountability. These are these are big and kind of scary terms, but they come back to just that feeling that, you know, you are the ship, you are the you are the captain of the ship, right? That you have that you have autonomy, that you have power to, to solve problems, not just to be assigned tasks, right? 
Um, and, and, you know, the build system is absolutely a part of that. You know, this is where I think that a lot of SRE teams um, unintentionally um, kind of take ownership away from software engineers and they kind of put them in a, in a little corner and they're like, okay, you can't be trusted to own your code. We'll own your code for you, right? Sometimes this is coming from the SREs and the ops. Sometimes this is coming from the software engineers, but there's this, there's a sense of, okay, let's let the professionals take over, right? You give us our code, we'll run it for you. And that is, that is the original sin of, of, of operations, right? That's the original sin. These, these two have never been, they should never have been separated into two domains, development and operations, because it's about code ownership. It's about you writing the code and then owning it, right? It, owning it in production. And it doesn't mean you can have experts to help you. SREs are, you know, domain experts when it comes to running stuff, stuff in production. And you should absolutely make use of their help. Um, whether that comes to, you know, platform engineers spinning up stuff for you to run your code on, you know, consultations about how to, you know, instrument it for good observability. Um, like nobody's saying that a software engineer has to be expert in every single thing that their code touches, but you do have to own it. You do have to take responsibility from the moment that you write it until your users are using it in production. But that's just the job. And, and, and it's in... It's interesting, right? Because the example that you were using, right? Uh, the SRE uh, type of work uh, that in lots of companies looks like the, the old ops, the, the different domains. I could say that is the understanding of patterns, right? Uh, and heuristics because SRE, it's a pattern that uh, Google created for a very specific problem, right? <laughs> Running planet scale infrastructure that not all companies have these type of problem right. and then we as an industry at least i see these i don't know how you understand these or perceive these we just like to copy these patterns so if google is doing it let's just copy it well however your company is different maybe just run software that runs in a country not at planet scale right and i find this interesting because we are a technical community driven by patterns, but sometimes I, I find my, even myself that we miss the patterns on the social part or, or how to create structure So the, the, in the, the social set, uh, technical systems. Do you observe the same about this copying mechanism? Did you observe the same about this copying mechanism? Oh, yeah, of course. And and by and large, this is a good thing. It's You, you don't want to reinvent the wheel every time you start to do something right it's much better to take a pattern that you've seen work and then modify it to meet your needs right and i think that google gave us a lot of excuse me a lot of really good patterns to kind of fork and and, and modify right um but you're absolutely right like um the way that google does sre is only going to be relevant to google in the end um I do think, I honestly think that um, DevOps is a, is a more cool, the way Liz puts it is that um, uh, DevOps is a class and SRE is the in, instantation, the instant, the instance of it. Um, and, and I think that's a really way of, of, good way of putting it. I mean, DevOps is this much broader sense that, you know, developers are over here and operations are over here and they should come closer together, you know, kind of like undoing that original sin. And an SRE is just kind of a very specific way of implementing that. Um, 
you, you, you were also asking earlier about um, culture, you know, just to circle back a little bit. I don't feel like I really answered your question about cultural shifts. And um, I think that the shift towards really, really owning your code is a big culture shift for most companies. Um, I think that a lot of software engineers, um, they instinctively ward it off. They, they don't embrace it at first because it feels like, oh shit, now I'm just going to be woken up all the time like the ops people are. That doesn't sound like fun, right? Um, and, and this also manifests in other ways, like earlier in the process, like, you know, Honeycomb, the way we build software is anytime that there's a problem we decide we want to solve, we, we have a lead designer, a product person, and an engineer. And they, they do all the discovery together. They do the design together. You know, they, they assemble a team and they build and they build and own the code together. Um, but that engineer is there from the very beginning. And I think that's really important, right? Nobody wants to be an engineer who's just taking JIRA tasks. <laughs> that's not fun for anyone. And it leads to dramatically worse outcomes, right? And this is a culture shift that needs to change, not just within engineering, but you know, all the way up to the CTO and CEO. Like, how do we build products? How do we, how do we, how do we build a company where people are empowered, where, where none of us are just taking tickets and solving them, right? Like we're, we're, we're all have an element of design. We all have an element of figuring out what does the customer really want and how can we really, how can we really serve that need? Because you're going to get better products. You're going to get better outcomes for users if everyone's brain is engaged in that problem, not just like two or three people. Yeah. And uh, this is a very topic that is close to me, right? How to, um, try to, to build this culture or, or fuel this culture, which is very interesting because you name two people in two different uh, roles, CEO and CTO, and you are CTO of uh, one of these companies that is keep growing and have a, a slightly different culture from the other companies. What will be your advice for people in your position to foster this culture shift, right? Because we cannot impose this and this takes time but to start fostering this these shift to own the code? Yeah, that's a really great question because most of us are not CEOs or CTOs. And there's a lot of like learned helplessness that I think starts to set in after you've been at job after job and just been you know, treated like a code monkey time and time again. The main thing I would say is that as engineers, we have a lot more power than we think we do. Right. Every company is now a tech company and engineers literally build tech companies. Nobody else builds tech companies. I mean, they do. But like if the engineers aren't on board, you know, this is why like the, 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 the competition for tech talent is so hot, even in economic downturns. Um, because because we hold the powers of the universe within our fingertips. Right. And what this means is that the first thing I would say is. If you're at a company where, well, first of all, you should try to change the place that you're at, right? You should do your best. But if, if it's at a place you've, you've lost hope that they're ever going to change or you don't feel like you're being well used, leave it. There are so many places out there that will treat you better, that will use your skills, that will that will 
wrap you and envelop you into the design process. Learn to search for this stuff in an interview, like find out where you will really be empowered and go to those places. Because at the end of the day, we shouldn't reward these people with these very backwards ideas about how we should be treated with our labor. We just shouldn't be, we shouldn't stick around and gift it to them like that. We should use our labor to for good, right? We should use our labor, especially for senior engineers. You are so in demand, right? you can get a job, you know, we have this feeling of scarcity around, around labor. And we have this feeling of, and I understand why, especially in the United States where your employer owns your healthcare plan, that's terrifying and pretty fucked up, but we have more power than we think that we do. And we should, we should use it. Right. Um, Now, now I think that like, you know, that, that's a very, that's a very big, high-handed statement to make. How can you use it, you know, is a better question. Um, and, and I think that the first, the first way that we can use our power is by asking questions. You know, why do we do it this way? Why don't we do it that way? Can we try doing it this way? You know, just patient, patiently asking questions. Um, another way, another thing that you can do is to start to organize, you know, make a, if you're, a, if you're a staff engineer, if you're a principal engineer, especially, you know, form a group of other principal engineers, staff engineers, senior engineers, and start to discuss these things and come up with solutions. I can't give you the solution for your, your company or where you're at, but you can, you know, especially a small group of you, you could come up with really great solutions to start pitching to your leaders. And it, it comes with more force if it comes from more of you, right? Another thing that you can do is, you know, it, to the extent that you have skip levels and you have the ear of, you know, CTOs and VPs and et cetera, use that, right? Um, point out where the industry is going, point out where, the, you know, the flaws in your organization, point out the things that make you frustrated, the things that make you want to leave. This sounds really basic, but a lot of us just don't do it because we think that it's hopeless. Or we're just like, oh, that person will never go for it. Oh, they're, they're stuck in their ways. Well, Maybe they are, they aren't, but maybe you can shape their direct, maybe you can bend it by 30%, right? Maybe you can open their eyes. Maybe they just think that you're stuck in your ways and can never be changed, right? Somebody has to open this discussion. So why not you? Thanks for your advice. And uh, it's a good call for action, right? Um, At least talking for myself, when I look back, so I had the privilege to have formal education, right? Um, on IT and um, what I also see for for the people that got formal education in the same line is that is very focused on the technical challenge. Oh, the the three norms of uh, relational databases and now all of these patterns. And in the end, we forget that this is a business made by people for people, right? Because even this, your example, Anika, as a software and we instrument and automate lots of things. But in the end, it's to help humans to understand the software that they are creating uh, when bad stuff happens, because when things are good, okay, fine, right? And I think that we tend to forget this and we don't teach this. And uh, sometimes the, the companies also forget about this, that is about these conversations, it's about collaboration, it's about all of these principles that we tend to forget. Now, my question is with your experience, do you see that as an industry, we are learning these or are we committing these scenes from the past? Absolutely. We have progressed. You know, it's human nature to always be like, 
it's doom. It's never been this bad. It's getting worse. But oh my God, in so many ways, like these are conversations that weren't happening, you know, 10, 20 years ago. In so many ways, whether it's like gender, you know, stuff in tech or, you know, minorities in tech or, um, you know, us learning better patterns in tech, us not overpaging people in tech. I'm not trying to say we've reached the promised land, um, but we have come so far and we should, we should feel some pride in that, right? Other industries are not embracing change the way tech is. There's always going to be regressiveness. There's always going to be pushback. Um, and there's always going to be people who are being hurt and who are being left out of this conversation. But like as a whole, yeah, I'm super optimistic, partly because the outcomes don't lie. This is a better way to build products. This is a better way to delight users. Companies who don't get on board are going to die. You know, and, and what you were saying about you know, so there's, there's, I have two feelings about, about this. Um, you know, when you're, when you're saying, you know, um, <clears throat> what you said about, you know, learning technology, and then we forget this is about people, you know, it, it, on one hand, it like Loki bothers me whenever somebody's like, all the hard, all the hard problems are people problems. You know, it's all people, it's all people. I'm like, no, it's not. sorry. I haven't been, a, no, it's not. No, it's not. Um, you, you have the luxury of saying that because you've been through what? 10, 15 years of technical training, yeah, the people problems should be the easy problems for you now, right? Like you should have graduated to that point, but it doesn't mean that the technical problems aren't hard and it doesn't mean that that knowledge isn't super valuable and it doesn't mean, you know, I, I always feel like it will be discouraging to, you know, more junior engineers if we're just like, oh, all the hard problems are, are you know, people problems. And it's like, they're like, well, why am I toiling away in the salt mines to, you know, level up at my technical knowledge? No, it, technical stuff is really hard. Uh, and it takes, you know, a solid decade, I think, before you can really call yourself a senior software engineer. And then once you've gotten to that point, yeah, you know, th there's a reason there's a, something we was talking about on Twitter yesterday, and there, the person was like, you know, look at doctors, like, you know, they start out in medical school, then they're resident, whatever. But at some point, you know, they're just a doctor. They're not like a senior doctor. They're not a whatever doctor. They're a doctor and they're going to go on doctoring for the rest of their career. Right. And this is how I feel about being a senior engineer. Right. If you're a junior intermediate, yeah, it's your job to level up. And once you become a senior engineer, yeah, you're going to go on engineering for the rest of your life unless you're one of the few people who decides to become a staff or a principal, but that's just categorically different work that involves a lot more people stuff. If you love engineering, and I think most of us do, senior software engineer is like, you're engineering for the rest of your life. You've worked really hard to get there. It's a great set of skills. And now you get to keep on learning and, and applying that knowledge in different and interesting ways for the rest of your career. And I think that that's, you know, something to acknowledge and be proud of. On the flip side, you're absolutely right. Um, there are a lot of places that have kind of drained the humanity out of it, uh, whether it's from a technical sense or from a business sense. Um, they feel like the metrics are the only thing that matter. Um, and they feel like they honestly, they feel a lot of fear when they, when they hear these conversations bubbling up from, from below, because they feel, they feel the loss of their, their control. They feel the loss of their power. And and that, that makes them uncomfortable, right? They worked very hard to get this control and this power. Why would they give it up, right? 
Um, and I think it's going to be a longer battle for us all to kind of come to terms with that in ourselves and realize that in giving up that control, we make ourselves better, right? In draining the org chart of hierarchy, we motivate everyone and we make the organization better, right? Being a VP is not better than being a director or a manager or an engineer. It's just a different job. I'm also for plat flattening these pay scales, which is not quite as, <laughs> as popular within the, the, the ranks and files. But, but, you know, the more that we can drain ourselves of hierarchy and just look at, okay, I have a different job to do than you do. I'm going to do the hell out of it, right? And maybe this is also why I feel so strongly about management not being a promotion, it being a change of career. Maybe you want to go acquire those people skills as an engineer. I don't feel like it should be a promotion. It should just be, okay. I want to go try that for a couple of years because then if I don't like it, it's not a huge loss of ego, loss of status for me to say, no, not for me. I want to go back to being an engineer, right? Because I really do believe that the best technical leaders, senior technical leaders, and I'm talking 20, 30 years into their career, the really, truly great ones, they've done time as a manager, but they've consistently gone back to engineering, you know, as the source of their power. And they've rode that pendulum back and forth a couple of times and they just keep getting stronger and more, more amazing. You know, if we can just like look at the job, look at the role for what it, for the function that it plays in the organization and, and look at ourselves and see whether or not it feeds us, it makes us happy. Then I think that everyone's going to be way better off in, in the end. They will, they will. And I, I see, because now I work as a consultant, I start to see this shift, at least here in Europe, as you were saying, because in Europe is also considered that uh, even to have a better salary, you need to go and be a manager, which leads uh, to great engineers be a, a terrible manager and then culture goes down the drain, right? Yeah. <laughs> because the, there isn't a match. And now starts to, to have this mentality that is about... Um, what you do, yes, different titles, yes, maybe different ranks. Yeah, the, the CEO and CFO are responsible towards court because they, in the end, sign all of the, 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 the big decisions. Fine, but at least I start notice this is changing. And there are some software houses or, or places that develop software with lots of software engineering that becomes a more happier place to work with. Yeah. Uh, Having those parallel job ladders, I think, really important. You know, if, if the only place you can go after being a senior engineer is to become a manager, all your best engineers are going to become managers. Then they're not going to be engineering. You know, and who wants to give up that salary and that, you know, your mom's always going to be like, oh, my God, you're a manager now. Right. Like we need to lean against that in this industry to really praise people when they go back to engineering and show them how much we value that, too, because these are the people who are building our systems for the next generation, right? I think that we need, I think that, you know, it comes to, you know, senior engineers should be at par with like, you know, first level managers, you know, senior, senior, senior managers, right? Then like, you know, your staff engineers or your principal engineers should be at the level of directors or VPs, you know, wherever you choose to correlate them on that ladder, there needs to be a ladder for great technical talent to stay technical and, you know, and yet make more money and be more revered. I also think that we just need to like boost the, the, um, 
the 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 reputation and the you know perception of senior engineers who have been in that position for a long time just because most engineers are never going to be staff and principal engineers and that's fine and that's that's actually great because we don't need as many staff and principal engineers as people who want to be staff and principal engineers you can only uh, really absorb like maybe one principal engineer per thousand engineers <laughs> really if the title has any meaning whatsoever and and because we don't because we don't you know put enough whether it's money or status or whatever into being a senior engineer that means that we're just doing all this title inflation where we've got tons of staff engineers and principal engineers and just because people want a way to progress and make more money and they should because you know you know 40 years of being in the same exact position with the same salary is stupid right they're becoming more powerful they're becoming greater um, and we don't really, this is where I love what the industry is doing right now with the whole staff plus movement, but I also think that we are going to need a similar movement that's just for how do we really recognize senior engineers? We will, we will. I'm uh, also start seeing these discussions on Twitter. Uh, I don't know how we're going to solve that, but what pops, pops in my mind, because I have these discussions with a colleague of mine, we study a bit of promise theory, right? And the idea of uh, the agency. And that in the end is this model. Although you have, you know, C-level and senior management, that is just an engine uh, agent on our system, right? That is trying to sense things in a different time scale. Because in the end is what I told people. It's about the, 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 the time frames and the time scales. What, what is the time frame of the problem that you are trying to solve? Are you looking to generate options for the next three years? Or are you fixing and delivering a problem in the next two, uh, two weeks? That is complex from an engineering point yep. of view, but is to be delivered now. Yep. Let's Very start thinking about this, right? Right. And then how we connect to each other's uh, within a company to be a great place to work. And I think that, well, we can be esoteric and have these type of conversations between us because also we like these theories. But I feel that yeah. Yeah, the um, industry starts to go there without calling this, which is also very interesting. Yeah. If you need to start a new company, what was the, the biggest learning from any camp that you want to bring with you? Uh, I will never start another company. <laughs> I will never do that. Yeah. Uh, doing it once was brutal. It was it was miserable. It was terrible. I'm never doing it again. Um, <laughs> so that's the lesson that I've learned from starting a company. Don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, I'm not even joking. <laughs> what was the skill that you or or you in inside you think that you didn't have, and by starting a company and be so brutal, you need just to acquire that to uh, keep moving that forward? Oh, it's a good question. You know, I I was born stubborn as a mule. Um, so I can't say I learned that. Um, honestly, and this sounds, it sounds like I'm joking, but I'm not. I think there's a lesson that I've learned is to quit sooner. <laughs> it was like, I lost my marriage because of the startup. And I, I you know, just like, I went to some places that were not, not healthy or good for me. Um, and I'm really glad that Honeycomb survived and that we are now in a much better place, but like most, most startups don't. And then what do you have for it? Right now? I, all right. So taking your question as it was intended though, um, what have I learned at Honeycomb? Well, I've learned a lot about just how 
sounds very trite, but like how organizations grow, how to raise money, how to, you know, how, you know, Christine and I, we were hardcore engineers when we started this company. I had never heard the term product market fit. I didn't know what it meant. I didn't know what designers did. I didn't know what marketing did. I didn't know what sales did. Not really. I didn't know what any of these things did. All I knew, I didn't even know how to build products. I was an ops engineer, right? I was just like fucking pigheaded. And I was like, I have this idea and it needs to exist. I didn't know any of this shit. Um, and now I do. And I, I, I guess that's a good thing. I, you know, I'm, I'm more well-rounded now. I think, I think now that I, I have the potential to be a good technology executive, whereas before I, I didn't, I, I, I don't think that I had the raw skills to be anything more than maybe a director of operations. And now I think I could be a pretty good VP of engineering. Thanks for sharing um, um, this tough journey. I uh, only can imagine how hard it is to, to start a company. Uh, I tried and failed and never went there. So um, it can be very it's, intensive. It's yeah. And, and one, one thing I think that was going for us was that, maybe not, I don't know. Investors hate when I say this, um, but I never expected to succeed. I always expected to fail. You know, when I was leaving Facebook, I, for the first time in my life, I had a quote unquote pedigree, right? I'd always worked at companies that nobody had ever heard of. Coming out of Facebook, I had a pedigree. I had a little bit of a public presence. And so investors were kind of coming after me saying, would you like a couple million dollars? And honestly, that hadn't really entered my mind. I was planning to go be an engineering manager at Slack or Stripe or something. And suddenly I was like, well, I kind of feel an obligation on behalf of all women and queer people and dropouts in tech to kind of take this money and do something with it. So, you know, we'll go build this product that I know must exist in the world. And, you know, it'll take us a couple of years, but then we'll fail and it's fine. We'll open source it. <laughs> and then I will have to live without this tool forever. Right. And like, that was the full plan. So like every year I'd just be like, well, this is probably the year we're going to fail. Right. And <laughs> not very motivating to everyone else, but like, um, it, it was helpful for me, I think, because it was just like, you know, there's a lot of moments where you're disappointed. You just feel like kicked down and like discouraged and rejected just over and over and over. And for me, it was like, well, yeah, pretty much what I expected. So I think psychologically it was easier for me to deal with because of that. Uh, but it's, it's, it's a great story. And I think at least for me, you are an inspiration, right? So uh, um, to see what you produce and uh, uh, um, the, where you are pushing also the, the industry, because although, you. you know, uh, you are, and it seems a successful company, right? It's hiring more people and and, and growing. Yeah. Uh, the, the 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 vision uh, that you and your partner have to 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 push this product, I think that start shaping the the industry, right? Which is yeah. good. Which then leads to more companies to pop up, which leads to more competition. Which I do feel good about good. that that we have materially changed the the arc of the universe when it comes to understanding software and i i feel pretty fucking good about that i do which is great right so uh, um and i think that that legacy just amazing so we just need to um recognize that and getting so trying to run that how building this product this amazing product having uh, things that investors didn't like you to say, how did you build this confidence within your team? 
to try to connect to the initial pattern. Our team. Well, I think the early people who joined Honeycomb were legitimately, they saw what I saw. They saw how painful it was to understand their software. And they saw that we were onto something, right? Like Emily Nakashima, who's now our VP of engineering, she joined us as just like a mid-level software engineer on the front-end side. And she joined because she'd been at Bugsnag. She had been working, you know, in this space for years. And she saw how painful the tools were. And she looked at our solution and she went, yeah, I want this. I want to have this at every job that I work at after this, right? And so I think that was a good motivator for a lot of people. I think that other people um, were really drawn in by the way we talked about how we were building a company. Um, the fact that we were so open about the fact that, yeah, interviewing is broken and we're going to try not to make the same mistakes that other people, we're going to make different mistakes, but we'll make different, you know, but we won't make the same mistakes. Um, I think, you know, in full honesty, I think a lot of people, because they told me this, um, just wanted to work for founders who weren't straight white dudes anymore. And this was mostly men who told me this, not women. It was mostly men who were just like, I just, I just want to, I just want to work for, you know, a different set of people for a while. Um, so, you know, there's not one motivation, you know, I think there's a lot of different motivations, but I think that for the most part, I mean, frankly, um, it's usually not hard to get developers to want to work on a developer tool. It's kind of like catnip for developers. <laughs> but also, I think if you have a tool that people are genuinely stoked about, and as people started to use Honeycomb and just be talking about how much it changes their life, then that's that's really shiny to an engineer to just like to be able to like work on something that changed other engineers' life and, and work for the better. That's pretty powerful. It is. It is. Um, so far, um, I think that there are lots of knowledge uh, on these uh, podcasts, and you share a lot uh, between the technical part of the, the heuristic, the, the pattern, and how this affects uh, the company and the, the social system, and uh, a lot of your experience. Thanks for this. I have one last question that are the resources that you recommend to the audience? So uh, uh, anything that can help the audience go one level deeper. Totally. Um, so, you know, I, I got to point you to the Honeycomb blog, uh, honeycomb.io slash blog. We talk a lot there. It's not mostly about Honeycomb. There's a lot of stuff just about technology and about observability and about engineering management there. Um, also, my personal blog is charity.wtf. And I write a lot of stuff there um, about engineering leadership and, and whatever, especially about the pendulum. I think I've written like five pieces now about what it's like to go back and forth between engineering and management. Um, and I also want to put a shout out to this, this newsletter that I discovered yesterday at rawsignal.ca. They had this amazing newsletter that I found somebody on Twitter like linked it to me. And it was like, it's talking about how you can, you can find the pathologies and org charts without any names or functions on it just by looking for dotted lines or the string of pearls as they call it, where you've just got one person reporting to one person reporting to one person reporting to one person, right? Or like clusters, we've got like more than 10. And I was just like, yes. <laughs> so I've been like looking through this newsletter and it's, it's fantastic. Um, you know, I point you towards Liz Fong Jones's Twitter. I would point you toward Jessitron stuff. Um, both of them are fantastic. And Jessica Tron in particular writes a lot about systems thinking. And I, I just always get so much out of it. 
Thanks for these resources. I will make sure that uh, they are on the description of the episode so uh, people can uh, read them and also be in contact uh, uh, with Liz and uh, Jessica. They are very active on Twitter as well. And I want once again, uh, all heart, thank you for uh, your time uh, to share the knowledge with us. Absolutely. Thanks for this conversation. It's been really fun. Thanks.